great to have Christine back from college. Appreciate that. I hope she'll be able to share some more of this summer while you're around. A couple of announcements uh, that uh, um, Steffi reminded me that she has a sign-up sheet in the pass-through. If you want to receive newsletters, information, sign up on that sheet, especially if you're going to partner with her in praying. I uh, encourage you to do that, but it's for anybody and everybody. And uh, Russell and Betty Wyatt wanted me to make an announcement on how they're doing. Russell's getting a little overwhelmed with all the phone calls, wondering how things are going. So he wanted me to just let everybody know uh, Betty's getting better. Uh, he's got a cold. Um, so uh, she hopefully will be uh, released, uh, I think, Tuesday is kind of what they're targeting, uh, that she'll be able to get back home. So keep, keep praying for them. So back in uh, 2001, NBC aired a brand new show called Fear Factor. And uh, contestants were vying for a $50,000 grand prize. And, and what you had to do to win was successfully complete a number of, of crazy stunts that were dangerous and involved, uh, as, as the name would suggest, our most common fears, such as you know height, speed, darkness, fire, being underwater, creepy, crawly things you're interacting with, this kind of stuff. It's a little hard for me to describe, so I thought I would just show you uh, one quick one-minute video. Basically, this is what Fear Factor was about. So here's the video. Fun, huh? So the, uh, you know, the nice thing about uh, Fear Factor is it's just a show. If you didn't want to do any of that, you don't have to sign up to be on it. Uh, and even if you thought you were going to do it and you got there and decided, no, nah, I don't like that, you could always just walk away. But uh, the question for us is, what about those fear-inducing times as Christians where your faith in Jesus Christ does not give you the option to just walk away? Uh, that's the question that's addressed for us in Daniel chapter 3. So if you haven't already done so, I encourage you to open up your Bibles, Daniel chapter 3. Uh, we'll be telling the whole story, um, uh, highlighting some verses as we go through, but that way you're able to follow along in your own Bible. This particular story is not about Daniel, but instead about his uh, three friends. And it begins, though, with the king, Nebuchadnezzar, making this giant statue. So verse 1 says, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width was 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, a cubit was not an exact unit of measurement. It was the length uh, from a person's elbow to the tip of his finger. And so uh, 
my cubit would be different than Lyle's cubit. Uh, just for the fun of it, I measured it. My cubit is 17 and a quarter inches. His is 21 and a quarter inches. I'm thinking the ancient Babylonians were closer in size to me than Lyle. Uh, basically, uh, people have said about 18 inches is what it averages out to. So that would make this statue around 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide, which is about the same if you've ever been to the Statue of Liberty, the same height as the Statue of Liberty, only a lot skinnier. Um, and, and when it says that it was made of gold. That doesn't mean it was like this solid gold brick that was heaved up on the, on the plains there. It was most likely made of wood, but completely overlaid with gold, which would still be a, a ton of gold. And so uh, gleaming in the morning sunlight, this would have been just a, a marvelous, massive, monolithic, magnificent monument to the monarchy uh, is basically what this was. And, and nobody knows exactly where this plains of Dura uh, was. Uh, Dura is actually an Aramaic word that means walled or fenced area, so it was a very common place name uh, all over there. And uh, it, it most likely was somewhere very near Babylon so that the residents of the capital city would be able to see it and be impressed by it. And, and the construction is something that would have taken uh, most likely multiple years. Uh, about 200 years after Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the residents of Rhodes uh, made a, a, a great a huge statue called the Colossus, one of the seven ancient wonders uh, or wonders of the ancient world. And it took them 12 years to complete that statue, and it was only 10 cubits higher than Nebuchadnezzar's. Uh, so when he uh, completed this golden image, uh, he decided to throw this huge dedication party. And he invited all of the political and civic leaders uh, from the entire nation. Verse 2 says, Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And when I say that he invited them, uh, that means he demanded uh, that, that they come. Yeah, he told them, and you don't say no to the king. So at the appointed day, all these government officials show up and the king has them assemble in this field out in front of this statue. And the Bible never tells us exactly what the statue was. Some people have speculated that it was an image of the king himself. I mean, after all, Nebuchadnezzar was the general who, who led the campaigns to conquer most of the world. He was down there leading the army into Egypt. He saw those huge stone statues of the pharaohs and the pyramids to their honor. Uh, you know, maybe he saw the sphinx down there. Who knows? And he wanted to build something even more impressive for himself. Um, on top of that, if you remember back uh, to his dream that Daniel interpreted in Chaniel, uh, Daniel 2, uh, he saw this giant statue in his, his dream where he was the head of gold, and maybe he said, head shmed, man, I'm going to do the whole thing in gold and make it all about me, you know, I don't know. Uh, somewhere along the line, some people have thought maybe it was the king. Others have suggested it was maybe one of the gods of Babylon, like Marduk or Aku or one of these the, multiple gods, or maybe a bunch of them uh, just kind of all stacked on top of each other like a totem pole. Um, but the, the text doesn't make any indication of any gods, so, uh, you know, that's uh, hard to say for sure. 
others have said that maybe it was more of a political thing that he was doing here. Uh, and the statue was something that represented the state of Babylon, the nation of Babylon, you know, kind of like a logo. Uh, and, and this is kind of based on verse 4, which says, Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. See, Babylon was, was built on these diverse uh, peoples that had been conquered and then brought to live in that country. And, and some were there, the cream of the crop, to serve in, in the king's court, but, but other refugees and, and captives were brought in and just populated the land. And so this land was populated by all these different speaking, uh, uh, different languages, different tongues, uh, different ethnicities, different backgrounds, all that kind of stuff. And, and maybe he thought, I can just bring them all together. Remember, Babylon was polytheistic. He didn't care if you kept your own god or gods and all that kind of stuff. You're just supposed to add on all the ones from Babylon there. And... Um, Maybe he thought by creating one single major object for everybody to worship uh, that that would bring all the peoples together. Nobody knows for sure, uh, but it really doesn't matter because whatever it was, the king was demanding that all his officials worship this statue and thereby worship whatever that statue represented. But... And worship is the key there. That's how the herald continues in verse 5. That at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trident, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. The phrase fall down describes the typical posture of worship in that culture. Down on your knees, rear in the air, nose in the sand. Uh, that was what was expected. It was very clear. Nobody could be mistaking what Nebuchadnezzar was after. And just to ensure that this would be an easy choice for everybody to make, there was a severe penalty if you chose not to comply. Verse 6 says, but whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Now, it's very likely that out there on the plains of Dura, there was a large smelting furnace or kiln that was used in the construction of the monument itself. And it would have been uh, a, a, a large cylinder with an earthen ramp up to the top so they, they could uh, either melt things over the, crop, the top or throw things in that way. It would have had a door or window at the base so that they could have stoked it with more wood and kept the fire heated and all that kind of stuff. That's what it was. And, and chances are uh, Nebuchadnezzar would have had that thing fired up there so it added a little bit of punch to his words. Here's the deal, guys. You fall down in worship or the fire, your choice right there. And he laid it out right in front of him. So at just the right time, the band strikes up a tune and it says all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshiped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And the king, you know, he had to be pleased with himself as he looked out across this sea of compliant worshipers bowing down to his statue. But 
That pleasure was rather short-lived because just a few minutes later, a group of Chaldeans, and you remember the Chaldeans were the astrologers that were part of the advisors in the king's court. These guys come up to the king in order to be tattletales. And they start by trying to flatter the king. You know, they say, oh, king, live forever and all this kind of stuff that they always do. And then they remind the king of what he just got done telling everybody. You, O king, said when everybody hears the music, they're supposed to fall down in worship. And if they don't fall down in worship, they're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. And he's like, you can picture him going, yeah, yeah, I know what I just said. What's your point? And then they get to the point. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon. We don't like to give names, but their initials are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Now, I I think there's probably a clue in that verse as to why these guys felt they had to be these tattletales. They go to great pains, right, to to point out to the king that he had chosen them to, to elevate them in a position of, of, of power and authority in the Babylonian government. And perhaps they were jealous that these foreigners were rising above their own status, and they figured, hey, this would be a great way to get them out of the way, and maybe it'll make us look good in the eyes of the king at the same time. So it's a win-win situation for us. And notice how they turn this situation into a personal attack against the king, right? It says, these guys disregard you, O king. They don't serve your gods. They don't worship the image you set up. It's all about you, and they don't like you. And this tactic seemed to have worked pretty well because immediately the king flew into a rage and demanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. So now take just a minute and think about these three guys. What what do you think they thought when they very first received the summons telling them they had to assemble in front of this huge golden image? There's no indication that they would have known at that point what the king was going to demand and what they were going to have to do. But they had to be able to make a fairly educated guess at where this was heading. And there had to be this sinking feeling in the pit of their stomach, right? Uh Uh-oh, he's going to want everybody to pay homage to this statue. How's that going to work? What's that going to look like? And therefore... What are we going to do? How how are we going to handle this situation? I mean, they couldn't refuse to come. Calling in sick was not an option. If If you don't show up, you're going to be in trouble already, right? The demand was already there to come. They had to walk into this knowing the risk they were taking. Their, their eyes were wide open, but they, they, they took that, well, let's go and see what happens and approach. And once they got there, of course, their, their worst fears were realized. Not only was the king demanding worship of the image, but he was adding consequences to noncompliance. And not just, uh, you know, uh, a fine or a demotion or getting fired. This was the death penalty. Now they were in, in a very serious situation publicly on the spot. 
And not only was there the pressure from this authoritative command, but there was all the peer pressure around them. Everybody else, literally everybody else, was doing it. And this easily could have been a situation that would be driven by fear, wouldn't it? And this is where our minds kind of kick into overdrive, coming up with justifications, loopholes, ways we can get out of it, right? They could have set up some, you know, arbitrary public versus private divide uh, in their life. You know, the way a lot of modern-day politicians do. Like, like, like take the issue of abortion, for example. So many people say, well, personally, I'm against it, you know, but publicly, I need to support it just for those people that might find themselves in a crisis situation. You know, it's kind of like saying, you know, it's just part of my job. I have to do it, but I don't personally agree with it myself. These three Jewish guys could have did that, but they didn't. Or they could have just said, well, we'll just pretend to comply. You know, we'll, we'll go through the physical motions of bowing down, but in my heart, I'll actually be thinking about the one true God and, and, and praising Him. As if our inward thoughts and beliefs can somehow be severed from our outward actions. Or they could have taken a ends justify the means approach, right? I mean, Think of all those poor captive Jews that were there in the nation of Babylon. What would happen to them if we get turned into crispy critters? Uh, you know, we'll, we'll comply just to maintain these political positions of power, and thereby we're able to help all these other poor Jews. It'll be worth it in the end. You know, the ends justify the means. See, justifications, loopholes, whatever you want to call them like that, they always try to make things really complicated and complex when in actuality, it boiled down to a very simple choice. Are we going to obey God or not? That, that, that was it. I mean, these guys knew the Ten Commandments, right? And, and the very first two commandments are quite clear. You shall have... No other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water underneath it. You shall not worship them or serve them. The word serve can be bow down. And knowing this, these three men knew they could not bow to the golden image, no matter what kind of justification might serve us. And you know what? The the same thing is true for us. And I understand, we'll, we'll probably never be asked to bow before a statue, but we have all kinds of opportunities to face the question, am I going to obey God or not? And some of those situations can come with intense pressure. Years ago, when I was working downtown at, at a grocery store here, uh, the, the, the milk company uh, decided how much milk they were going to leave. And, and if uh, the milk expired uh, before you could sell it, uh, then they would give you a rebate for that milk. Well, 
the boss had ordered extra milk because uh, of holiday weekend or something. I don't remember what was going on, but it didn't sell. And it wasn't going to expire before the milkman came back. But he wanted to get the money rebate anyways. And the way you did that was you just emptied all the milk jugs and you showed them the empty milk jugs and you asked for the rebate. And in front of the other employees, he said, Mark, I want you to empty all those milk jugs for me. They weren't expired yet. And right away, my mind's trying to think of, how do I, what? And I knew. I couldn't participate in that. I would be participating in lying, deceiving this company, if I did what he asked me to do. And fully believing I was going to get fired, I told the boss no. And you know, it's just a job. I could have easily, if a part-time job, I, I could have easily found something else. But you know, there's a, a fair amount of pressure when you have to tell your boss no. These three guys knew they could not comply. So they quietly didn't. They just didn't bow down. But they were caught and brought before the king. And and the king, he must have liked them because he gives them a second chance. He says, hey, guys, come on. If you'll bow down, everything will be fine. We'll just forget the whole thing happened. You'll still maintain your great positions and power and all this kind of stuff. But if you don't, it's the fiery furnace for you guys. And, And according to the king, nobody could stop him from burning them up. In fact, he issues what can only be seen as really as a challenge. He says, and what God is there who can deliver you out of my hand? And and this time, the three men just spoke up very boldly. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, Let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This verse right here, these two verses actually, this is is the crux. This is the climax of the whole story right here, this. Not what comes next, not, not the stuff that happens after this. That's not the climax. This is it right here. They make an incredibly profound statement, three, three statements really, that, that have a vital bearing on our lives today and us being able to live a life of faith with conviction and character. Three statements. Statement number one, true faith believes in the power of God. True faith believes in the power of God. Their declaration is what? God, our God, is able. That's what they said. Our God is able. They're standing there in front of a threatening, raging king and a furnace that's blazing full of fire, and they declare, our God is able. He's able to protect us from the fire. He's able to deliver us from the hand of the king. And you know, Nebuchadnezzar, he was a a religious guy, but he didn't believe that, did he? He thought that he as man was more powerful than God. I'm the king. I made the plans. What God can deliver you from me? See, he, he claimed 
to worship gods? Lots of them. But he didn't believe that any of them could overcome human situation. Now here's, this, this is sad but true. I have come across many professing Christians who are closer in belief to Nebuchadnezzar than they are to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They, they know that God is supposed to be all-powerful, but it, when it comes to the practical living of this life, to, to following God, to doing what He's called you to do, to living life, they don't really believe that God is able. They live as if the plans and the purposes of man are more real and more binding than the plans and the purposes of God. So how about you? Do you truly believe that God is able? I don't know what fiery furnace you might be facing. You can fill in the blank to whatever fear might be holding you back. Do you really believe God is able to take care of you? Or are you listening more to the king than to God? Statement number two. True faith accepts the plan of God. And I might add, whatever that plan is. Notice that they said, even if God does not. So in other words, they believed that God could protect them from the fire, but they didn't know whether or not God would do that. What God is able to do and what God plans to do is not always the same thing. So even though they knew that God was able, they freely admitted that they didn't know whether deliverance was part of God's plan or not. And they accepted that. And the consequences that might come from that. There was going to be no presumption on their part about what God had to do for them. And that takes faith. Over the years... I've met a number of discouraged and disillusioned Christians. Often they were angry or bitter. And frequently it's because of what God didn't do. God didn't save my mom from cancer. God didn't protect my child from that car accident. God didn't provide me that job when I really needed it. And on and on the list can go. Often, their phrases are couched in the terms of a question. Why, why did God let? Why did God allow? They may not have realized it, but they were, they were presuming on God and what He should do in their circumstances. Faith that allows us to live with conviction and character realizes that God is in charge of His plan, not us. There is going to come a day when evil will be done away with, when every tear will be wiped away and, and all that kind of thing, but that's not now, and that's not down here on earth. Even faithful, God-honoring believers will suffer here on earth. 
in the first message uh, on this series, I mentioned that, uh, that uh, there was another prophet prophesying at the time Daniel was taken captive. Jeremiah was prophesying. Uh, along with him, there was another prophet, Uriah. Uh, they were both prophesying, and, and the Bible says they were both faithfully preaching what the Word of God was, telling the people about the gloom and doom that was coming. And this made Jehoiakim, the, the puppet king that, that Babylon had left in charge, made him mad, and he was going to kill them both. And Uriah was put to death in front of the king with the sword, but Jeremiah was spared. Why? Why one die, why one live? We don't know. It was the plan of God. You move to the New Testament, and, and you remember shortly after the resurrection and, and ascension of Jesus Christ, and He gave the commission, go and, and, and make disciples. And, and as the apostles are out doing what Jesus commanded them to do, James, the apostle, was, was taken captive by Herod and was beheaded. And when Herod saw how happy that made the Jews, he arrested Peter and intended to do the same thing with him. But before he could, God delivered Peter. James killed, Peter alive. Both doing the same thing. Why? We don't know. It was part of God's plan. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't know which way it would go for them. Would they be delivered? Would God keep them safe, bring them back home happily to their family? Or would they be allowed to be martyred for their faith in the cause of Christ? They didn't know, but they were willing to submit themselves to God's plan, whatever it would be. Statement number three, true faith does not predict God's ways. It simply holds on to God's Word. And these three Jewish guys, they, they couldn't predict whether God would save them or allow them to die as martyrs, but they never lost sight of what was actually the crucial matter in this situation. And the crucial matter was not deliverance, but obedience. They held on to God's Word. They would not have any other gods before them. And how can we say that deliverance is not really what matters? I mean, we pray for that all the time, don't we? We pray for safety. Keep us safe. Do this. And we want deliverance. We want to escape from these things. Why can we say that's not the crucial matter? It's simply because of this. It's because we know that this life is not all there is. We can stand firm and hold on to God's Word in spite of pressures against it because we understand that the very worst that anybody can do to us down here is kill the body. And Jesus made that point Himself when He said, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. We have a higher authority, so we don't have to fear the lesser and what they can do. And, and faith that lives with conviction and character is built upon that reality of eternity and who we serve. And, and when we focus on eternity, we gain the courage to stand firm down here. It's, it's the fear factor that often does Christians in. 
Fear causes us to bow under the king's authority. Fear makes us bend the knee to, be, to peer pressure. Fear makes us wilt under the flame. Fear keeps us from doing what we know God tells us to do. And the way to combat that fear is to take hold of a faith that believes in the power of God. God is able, but is also fully submitted to the plan of God. Whatever He sets, I'm willing. And chooses to hold on to the Word of God. Not only what it commands, but what it promises. And that's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego displayed. That's the true climax of this story. When they stop right there and say, we will not bow. What comes next? That's not really the climax. If you want to find out what comes next, I encourage you to come back next week. We'll, we'll get on to that. But for today, let's close in prayer. Father God, we do thank you for these examples, these accounts, these stories of men, women of God who displayed what it takes to live a life of faith, following you. And God, we, we know that they're men just like us. Same weaknesses, same frailties, but the same hope in the same God. So Father, help us to be able to stand firm, to live with this kind of conviction. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.